All right. We have been looking at perfectionism and the burden of perfectionism in our lives. And as Christians, we tend to, it tends to get worse for us because we feel as believers we ought to be uh, perfect. We ought to get it right. And the, the reality is that we don't. And the perfectionist deals with the tyranny of the arts, right? <clears throat> I have to do this. I have to do that. I should be better. Uh, he looks at himself and he thinks he's nothing. He, uh, there's self-depreciation comes into it. Uh, there is legalism that comes into it. There's anxiety uh, that comes into it because we feel we should be better. Um, <clears throat> And then there can be an oversensitive conscience that uh, creates even more anxiety. And then people can get angry. You know what? If you're always failing and you can't think you make, make it, you, you think, think you can't make it, you can end up getting angry. You can end up getting bent out of shape uh, with the whole thing, and bent out of shape with people, and ultimately bent out of shape with God. And often, though, uh, the anger is not faced but denied, and because uh, <clears throat> anger is a terrible sin, it's pushed down, uh, and a mixture of bad theology, legalism, and salvation by performance becomes a frozen Niagara, and that is when deep emotional problems set in, uh, and people get difficult, and they have difficulties even in their Christianity. Now, the thing we want to look at tonight is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it if you have a problem with perfectionism? What do you do with it if you have a problem with uh, never being enough, never thinking God is satisfied, never coming to the place where it's okay? You see, nobody wants to be in a relationship where they're always failing. Nobody wants to be in a relationship where they never feel they're coming up to the mark. You get weary and tired of it. And that's what happens to people when they're Christian uh, walk too. And so we need to deal with it. We need to nail it on the head, and we'll look at some things tonight I think that will help us. Let's have a word of prayer, though, before we do. Father, would you help us tonight, Lord? We love you, and we need you. And, Lord, we are not perfect. We're far from it. But, Lord, uh, you are a gracious and a loving Heavenly Father. Would you help us tonight to enter into the sweetness of a relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing you need to do to overcome your perfectionism is just get honest with yourself. You're not next or near perfect. I almost want to have you repeat it after me, but we won't do that, right? Uh, just face reality. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. If the criteria for a sweet walk with God is perfection, we're in trouble because we're not perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2, those great surrender verses, right? <clears throat> Where you present your body to God, a living sacrifice, uh, and, and you, you're conformed not to the world, but you're transformed. And then in verse 3, it says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You're not to think of yourself more highly then you ought to. Do you realize that when we seek for perfection in ourselves, there's actually a pride that's part of it. We're actually thinking we're better. And we're not. Somebody said that the ground at the foot of the cross is even, it's flat. We all come the same way. And none of us come with our act together and, 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 and do for God. We all come broken. Helpless, unable. And we come to Jesus on our knees because we're not able and he sweeps in and he saves us. And he does it. It's not us. And we forget that, though, don't we? We forget that we weren't able, that we, we, we came to him broken. And that there, there's a brokenness that comes to all of us when it comes to salvation. We've got to realize we can't. And we think, well, now that I'm saved... I should be able to. And we start thinking of ourselves more than we are. And pride's always going to be a block, a barrier between us and God. Always. If you, look, if you follow through the Bible, it's, it's, it's one of the things that instantly becomes a block between you and him. Right? <clears throat> Humility will put you in the place where God puts his hand behind you and helps you. But pride will put you in the place always where God holds his hands against you and says, no, you're not going to, you're not going to do it. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Me to recognize, I can't, I'm not able. I was never, I was, God never planned for me to be able in myself, to save myself, nor uh, to live the Christian life. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 
First Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou hast not received? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now, let's think this through for a second. What's that talking about? What have you got that you weren't given? Every gift you and I have, we've been given. Right? Now, um, some of you can sing well. Some of you don't sing so well. That's fine too, right? Let's make a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? But some of you can sing well. Now, how did you get to the place where you sung well? Well, you practiced and you worked at it and you made it happen. Well, no, that's not really true. You may have improved the gift by practice and working on it. But you know what? You have a gift that's given to you from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it happen. It's just something that you were given. Some of you are academically bright. You can go in, you can, you, you can pick up a book, and you can read the book, and you can, you can spit out the information at the end of it. Now, how, how did you get that? Well, I worked hard at school. No, there's an element where the reality is something you were given. And yes, working at it is helpful, and working at it is going to help you to, uh, to do better at it, but the reality is it's a gift. You know, what have you got that you were not given? You say, well, I'm doing well. I've got a job, and I've always worked a job, and I've always uh, done the right thing. Well, well, is that just because you're a good guy, or is that because you were given a gift? And you see, if you go through all the things you have in your life, the world will say to you, listen, fair play to you. Go for it. Uh, You've earned it. You've got it. But the reality spiritually is every good thing about me is a gift. The gift from God. God's given it. And I'm going to flip this on its head for you. There are things you lack. Why do you lack those? Because I don't work hard enough at it. Is that true? Or is it that God has given you certain gifts and there are certain things he's denied you? Some of you struggle in the classroom. By the way, classroom does not define you. I think all too often in our culture, uh, it defines you because we're all so focused upon this uh, piece of paper, uh, you know, that, that, that says what a great work grade you got. And we're, we get very focused. And if you, don't, if you don't do well, academically, you're a dunce, you're a no good, you're a nobody. And people go down on the head of it. But you know what? <clears throat> Some of you just weren't gifted that way. That's just... The way it is. It's not that you're less. It's not that you haven't worked hard. It's just that you weren't gifted that way. You know, some of you haven't got great singing voices. But just something you weren't given. Some of you aren't musical at all. I mean, Tori can come play piano for us tonight and so And I, and I realized she, she, she probably has had a lot of lessons and her parents have spent a small fortune uh, on buying lessons for her and she plays well. And um, But you know, at the heart of it all, there's just a gift that she's developed. Some of you don't have that gift. Some of you just, you know, not everybody can learn to play piano like that. And you see, what we've got to do, do is understand this. If I have a gift, it's from God. But if there's an area where I haven't got a gift, the same is true. It's because he hasn't given it to me. I'm not less because I can't do the things you do. You're not less because you can't do the things I do. That's not the way it works. And yet so often what we do is we look at somebody else doing something. I should be able to do that just as well as I can. And when we can't, we measure ourselves. And God says, no. I've given you gifts. Let yourself off the hook. Just let yourself off the hook. You, You can't do everything everybody else can do. That was never the plan. You know, we're all parts we're all of the body. <clears throat> when we talk about the gifting in the body, we all have parts. But uh, Paul says, I mean, what if the whole body were an eye? Well, it would be ridiculous. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't function if it were all. God's given us all gifts, different gifts, different abilities. Uh, and he's purposefully put them in, in us. And some he purposefully hasn't given you. He hasn't given anybody all the gifts. And he, he, he wants you to recognize that. Look, stop beating yourself up. 
Because you haven't got your stuff all together and you haven't got it all sorted out and you haven't got it all in place. Admit to yourself, I am not perfect. I lack in certain areas. That's no shame. We all do. That's just honest. And humility is born of being honest with yourself. Pride is born of the lie of, no, I can do it. And it's me. Humility is born of <clears throat> being honest with yourself. Look at um, <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 7. <clears throat> this is the great apostle Paul talking. Probably, arguably, let's say, the best Christian that ever was. Definitely uh, the best missionary that ever was. You couldn't stop this guy. You could beat him up, you could throw him overboard, you could stone him to death. He would get up, shake himself off, and he would continue on being a missionary. You just couldn't stop this guy. But I want you to see something about him here. Because you and I feel we should be victory in Jesus all day, every day, don't we? And we're not. And so what do we do? We either face the reality of that or we pretend. Paul didn't pretend. Look what Paul says. Second uh, <clears throat> Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. An earthen vessel is a clay pot. A clay pot's not about the pot. A clay pot uh, is just something you put a plant in. A clay pot's about the plant. You're a clay pot. Your life's not supposed to be about you. Your life's supposed to be about Jesus. You're supposed to display him. So it's not about you. It's not about you looking good. It's not about you having your act together. It's not about you always being on top or always being victorious or anything else. It's about you showing Jesus. And Paul says, we have these, uh, this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, we're just pots. And the purpose of it is so that Jesus can shine. That's a help. You're not supposed to shine. He's supposed to shine through you. But he goes on. Uh, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now, without us going into all the words there and what they mean, it doesn't sound good, does it? I, um, trouble on every side. Yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair. It doesn't sound like he's kind of winning. He's kind of uh, running the race real well there. It sounds like he's under pressure. Always, verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. You know, if you went through Paul's life, this great victorious missionary, you would find this. There were times when he despaired even of life. There were times when, humanly speaking, he wanted to quit. There were times when he, when he really wished he could be in heaven and not down here. And he says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, and that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Here's the thing you and I have got to understand. In order for Jesus to shine in my life, it's not about me looking good and always having my act together and always getting it right and always sounding right and being right and looking right. It's about me living like me and sometimes failing. And then Jesus gets to be seen in all of it. It's not about me being perfect. Me being perfect would actually detract from him. God never intended or planned for me to be perfect. He never intended for me to get it all right. And when I think I can get it all right, it becomes all about me. That's not about me. 
It's about Jesus. It's about him. It's about uh, uh, looking at him being perfect and him being seen in me. So how do you deal with perfectionism? First of all, you face reality. You're not. And you're not going to be. And praise God, you don't have to be. Not going to happen. You don't have, that's, that's not the, the game plan. That never was the game plan that you should be perfect. The second thing is this, though. Receive grace. Receive grace. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. We're a few pages off there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, Paul says it twice. Lest I should be exalted above measure, lest I should get proud. Do you know that the great Apostle Paul could very well have had a problem with pride? He could very well have been lifted up to the place where he had pride. And because of that, God dealt in his life and gave him a thorn in the flesh, a difficulty, a problem, something in his life that just dragged him down. Something that hindered him from being the victorious super-Christian that we look back on him and see, see he was. Something to him that was, that was a difficulty. And he says it was a, he was given a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to give him a hard time. Right? Um, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. It was so bad in Paul's life that three times he went to prayer about it. And he didn't just, you know, three times, Lord, would you take it away? Lord, would you take it away? Lord, would you take it away? We can imagine the Apostle Paul really went to prayer. And he wasn't quitting until he got an answer. That he went to prayer and he, was, he, he, he wanted God to take this thing away. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, if you were I were the Apostle Paul and we were out there doing the work we were supposed to be doing and we were making great progress with the gospel and reaching people and great things were going on and we asked God to take something away, we would expect him to take it away so that we can get on with the work. We would expect him to take it away so that we would be able to actually achieve all that he had called us to do. We would think, hey, no problem for God. And, and, and we'd be right, there's no problem for God. But God didn't see it that way. God didn't see it that he should take away this issue. Instead, he said, what I'm going to do, Paul, is I'm going to leave you the problem. And the problem is going to make you depend upon me and draw grace from me, Paul. You're not going to do any less for me. I'm not going to remove the burden that I've called you to do. But instead of you being able to do it in your own power, Paul, you're going to have to lean on me and get my power to do it. Instead of you being enabled in yourself, instead of you being perfect in yourself, Paul, I'm going to give you a weakness. I've put it there purposefully. And your weakness, Paul, is going to make you depend upon me, and I'm going to give you the power to do what I've called you to do anyway. Paul, it's not about you being perfect. It's about me. Now, Paul could have gotten bent out of shape at that point, couldn't he? Can, can, can you imagine what you would say to God at that point? But God, I'm, I'm putting it all out there for you. I'm doing everything I can for you. Why can't you do this one little thing for me? Lord, you've, you've given me the power to raise people from the dead. I've done all, healed all kinds of people. Done, and I've got this one little problem and you won't fix it. But he doesn't. See what he does? He says... <clears throat> Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then am I strong. See, here's what you got to do. you got to face up to the fact, no, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. Never going to get it all right. Now, and if you don't face up to that, you're going to have to live a lie all your life and pretend to yourself and to everybody else that you are perfect. And you're going to have to live up to your perfect. And you're going to have to continue to try and make it look like you're perfect. And you're, you're always going to be failing because you're not perfect. Or you can come to the place where you recognize, I'm not perfect. I need God. I'm going to need him every day for the rest of my life. Because I can't do it by myself. I'm just not able. That's Christianity. The other is nonsense. Christianity always brings you to the end of yourself, brings you to that place where I need God. I need Him. I can't do it. The third thing you have to do, and I have to do, is this, right? We've got to come to a place in our lives where we depend upon His love. You see, Here's what perfectionism does in your life. Perfectionism puts you in the place where you're constantly striving, grasping, reaching out, trying to get to the place where you're worthy of his love. And you're never getting there. So you're feeling substandard. And you're feeling unlovable. Because you're not enough. You don't get it right. And you're not getting there. And you don't meet all the rules and you don't get all the stuff done you wanted to do and you, you, you feel like you're dissatisfied with yourself and you feel like God is dissatisfied with you too. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a painful relationship. It's a painful relationship if, you, if God's always dissatisfied with you. If God's always like the parent when you, when you finally got B's they said, you know what, if you tried a little bit harder you get A's. And if when you got A's, he said, well, you know what, I know those teachers. Those teachers just give out A's to any old body. If God's like that, you know what, we can't cope. Because the greatest, deepest need of your, your life and my life is that we be loved. And human beings have a hard time loving each other. And we know there is one that loves us. But if it's a love that's far out there and when I get it all right and maybe hopefully someday oh I give up honestly that's what I do I give up and you know a lot of Christians do give up a lot of Christians give up they give up on God but it's not the God of the Bible they're giving up on it's a God they made up or somebody else made up for them and they give up on him and they do really foolish things. I know some people that are living ridiculous lives because they gave up on God. They couldn't cope with it. They couldn't, they couldn't get to the place where they thought God loved them. They couldn't get to the place where they thought they were enough. They couldn't get to the place where they had any hope they were ever going to make it, so they just gave up. And they went into the world looking for their comfort and looking for their fun and looking for their satisfaction and looking for love. And you know what? It's not out there, definitely. Now, that's bad news. That's bad news. The reality is, though, that you and I are loved. Look at Romans 5, verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God, I'll let you see it there. When I hear the pages stop turning, I'll read it. Read. But God commanded, that means God showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for you? Before you were ever born. How much of your sin did he die for? All of it. Did he die for the sin you were going to commit after you were saved? Yeah, he died for all of it. He paid the price for all of it. God showed how much he loved you by dying for you 
when you didn't care about him at all. When you were going to live a life of sin and do your own thing and effectively say, God, you stay out of my life, I'm going to do my own thing. And everybody in this room has said that. Everybody in this room has said that. One way or another, we've said that. I'm going to live my own life and do my own thing and you stay out of it. That's what we always say. But he loved you. Even though he loved you. Now, how'd you get your head around that? That's a different kind of love. That's a whole different, that's a horse of a different color. That's something totally different. God loved me even when I hated him. God loved me when I didn't care about him. God loved me when it was all about me and I didn't care. Now, I mean, that's biblical truth. You're you're witnessing to somebody, explain the gospel to them, you'll go there. One way or another, you'll go there and talk about the love of God. And you should do. Because it's the love of God that draws people to Him. Now, let me ask you this, though. Does God love you less as a believer when you don't get it right than He did when you were a sinner in the depths of sin you weren't even His child? No. Does God in any is is it possible for God to love you less today than he did before you were saved? No, you're in. You're safe. You're loved. You're loved with an everlasting love. You're in. And you see, <clears throat> we'll look at some other verses here, but, but here's the point I want, want us to get. I'm not coming to a frowning, angry God who's saying, oh yeah, oh we'll see. I'm not coming to a frowning, angry God who's coming to me and saying to people, you get it straight and then I love you. There may have been people in your life that were like that, but it's not God. God loved you when you didn't care about him. God loved you when you were getting it all wrong. God loved you when you were, when you were doing wrong to your heart's content and he doesn't love you less as a child than he did then. So, here's the thing. When I come to God, I'm not coming and thinking, oh, I hope he's in a good mood today. I hope, I hope, I hope he doesn't mind what I did yesterday. Oh, I, I, keep, I keep getting it wrong and I, and I hope, I hope he's not mad. No. I'm coming to someone that loves me. I'm coming to someone that I'm his child. Romans 8 says we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. I'm coming to somebody who looks on me and he's a perfect parent and he looks on me like his sweet child. You ever see little baby? Little babies are monsters. They're totally selfish. They're totally selfish. They don't care about anybody but themselves. Mommy is part of them and is supposed to serve them. And whoever else is needed is supposed to serve them. That's just the way they are. I mean, they're they're monsters. They're very cute monsters, but they are monsters nonetheless, right? But you know, no good parent kicks that kid out and says, listen, get lost. put up with so much from them because we love them we take care of them we wash them we clean all kinds of things because we love them now listen I'm a father but I'm not nearly as good a father as God is think God looks at you when you're in a mess and says to you oh I'm done with you forget you I'm finished with you you get your act together. You've had every opportunity now. You get your act together. Now, some of you think that's what God says to you. But you got it wrong. That's not the way he looks at you. You're his beloved child. When you fall, he picks you up. And he tenderly takes care of you and sets you back on your feet again. And he helps you. 
So that when you come to him, you're coming to someone that loves you. If, if you would just understand how much he loves you, you would come to him much quicker. Rory? Okay, but you see, I know you're not saying this, but just let me clear this one up. It's not about you loving God. Right? It's about God loving you. Okay, catch that one. It's not about, listen, I didn't get saved because I loved God. I didn't care about God. I got saved because he loved me. We love him because he first loved us. And yes, we do question. But the problem, our question often, the basis of our question is our theology. We don't understand how he loves us. I mean, if I'm in the place where I know that God loves me and the arms are open, even though I've failed, then I'm likely to run to him. But if I'm in the place where I've failed, I hate myself, and Rolling around in the back of my mind is, God's so angry with me and I don't blame him. Then I don't want to go next or near him. This, this is important for us. It's important for us to get this. Yeah, that's why, talk, talk about addiction. Somebody goes, <clears throat> somebody goes back the way they came and goes back into addiction and they feel, oh no, I've blown it. Everybody's sick and tired of me. And God, spoken or unspoken, is sick and tired of me too. And he's not. And what happens is the enemy uses that to drive a wedge between you and God and push you further out from God. When he still loves you, he still wants you, and if you got that, you'd run to him. And you see, that's where we all need to come to. We all need to come to, to, to the place where, you know, <clears throat> where when we fail, we flee to him, not from him. Because he hasn't stopped loving us. And that's a theology problem. The, the problem is, who do I perceive this God to be? Well, if he's like your father that used to beat you when you annoyed him, then the last thing you want to do is go near him when you've done wrong. But if he's like the Bible says he is, then you should run to him. Dad, forgive me, I'm sorry. Of course I will, son. He said, that's too easy. Look, that's how easy it is. That's what the Bible says. And you and I don't have any, any, any guide that's better than what the Bible says. Look, um, Romans 8. Romans 8, 31. What should we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Like, think about it. What was the most valuable thing in all of heaven, the universe, to God? Jesus. No question. He's the most valuable thing. That's, he gives us the picture of a father and son relationship because we understand that, we get that. Well, Jesus is the most precious thing to all. And he says, if he gave his son for us, what's he going to hold back on us? What's he going to withhold for us? From us? Nothing. Because he gave his son for me. He loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me. That's to show me how much he loves me. So he says, will he not freely give, him, give us all things? What that is good for you, would your heavenly father deny you? And the answer is nothing. Now, we don't always see it the same as he does because he's got the eternal perspective and we've got the tomorrow perspective. But there's 
Nothing good that my heavenly Father would withhold from me. Nothing. Because he freely gave me all things. He loves me that much. Absolutely nothing he's going to withhold from me. Because he loves me. Let's go on. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who even at, uh, is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And, you know, the reality is that our imperfections and our failures as Christians are in there in verse 33 and 34. We fail. We get it wrong. But you know what? I'm not going to heaven based upon the fact that I justify myself. I never get there. Neither would you. Jesus justified. Jesus paid the price. He dealt with it completely. Who can condemn me? Listen, Jesus paid the price and he makes intercession for me. Here's what happens. You and I sin. And the devil goes in and he says, look, I told you he was no good. What did you waste your son on him for? He's he's useless. And Jesus stands up and says, I know he did it, but I paid for it. He's mine. It's covered. He makes intercession for us. He's our advocate. He stands before the Father and he says, no, he's mine. You may be a sorry-looking believer, but he's still going to intercede for you because you're his. He makes intercession for you because you're his. Now now catch this, because what this does is, this changes who it is that we're dealing with. We're not dealing with an angry father. We're not dealing with an angry God. We're not dealing with somebody who who looks at us and says to us, listen, you are a sorry-looking child. I, I wish I'd never had you. We're dealing with a loving Heavenly Father who's dealt with our sin issue. It's paid for completely. And our advocate, the Lord Jesus, stands before him to answer it. Then he says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What do you think he's doing in verse 35? What do you think the the Apostle Paul is doing there in verse 35 when when he's writing all that long list of things? What's he trying to do? He's trying to knock all the things that you think might possibly separate you from the love of God out of the way. He's trying to take them all up, dismantle them all for you. None of these things are going to do it. None of these things are going to separate you. None of these things, none of these things. Now, some of you are going to say, yeah, but you know what? It doesn't mention me. I could do it. No, that's, you got it wrong. He's knocking everything out of the way. He says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing you can do, nothing the devil can do, nothing anybody can do can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you're in. You're accepted in the beloved. Jesus paid the price for your sin. It's all washed. Past, present, and future. You're in. You're part of the family. You say, well, what's the motivation for holiness then? Why would I want to be holy since it's all done and dusted and dealt with? The reason you want to be holy is because you love him. And you want him. And you want to walk with him. And you want to please him. It's not about you getting in with him. It's about the fact that, listen, I want to get rid of anything that stands between me and him. It's, it's, it's our love for him that draws us in. It's his love for us, rather, that draws us in. And we want him. And listen, it's paid for. It's done. I'm in. I'm accepted. It's all paid for. So I want, I want, I want to be with him. I don't want sin. What's sin got to offer me now? What could that possibly offer me that's going to trump what he's given me? Do you you see the difference? The one is I'm climbing up, striving to be acceptable. The other is I'm in a puddle of tears because he loves me. 
He loves me that much. I'm in. I'm safe. I'm home. He's done. You see, this this striving up just wears me out and, and, and just destroys me. But when I realize how much he loves me, I'm in. It's done. It's sorted. I'm home. Why, why, why would I leave home to go and mess with the filth of sin? Why, why would I do it? It's got nothing to offer me. I've got him. Do, do you see the, the two different things? See, the striving, the, 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 the trying to, to get myself to the place where he loves me, you know, is, is effort and, oh, it's a weariness and I'm never achieving it. And so I'm, I'm wanting to walk out the door and get away from him. But when I stop striving and start realizing he loves me because he would love me, then I come to the place where I want to be with him. I don't want junk in my life. I want to be with him. That's grace. That's grace at work in our lives. That's what God wants us to, to the relationship he wants us to have with him. What do you have to do to please God? Nothing. You're in. Just walk with him in faith. It's not what you do. It's walking with him in faith. You're going to get it wrong. What do you when you get it wrong? Father, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to be doing this drunk. I want you. And you turn away from sin. You turn to him. And you're back in again. Well, you never left. But you're, you're, you're back in the, in the fellowship again. See, do we see it? You see, me seeking to get it right and to make it happen and to be the man and to, and to be there with God, all it does is wear me out. And make me critical of other people because they're not doing it the way I'm doing it. But when I come to the place where he loves me, just because he would love me, then there's, I'm drawn in. Let's, let's finish off our passage here, right? <clears throat> um, <clears throat> verse 36, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What's Paul saying? Listen, we're conquerors. We, we conquered because he loved us. On Paul's worst day, when they were stoning him, I'm a conqueror. Why? Because he loves me. I'm okay. Because he loves me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and he gives you another lift here, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing's going to separate. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, if we take that passage as a whole, what does it mean? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Now, what does that mean to you? That means every day, Every hour of every day, and every minute of every day, every hour, and every second of every minute, for the rest of eternity, which is forever, you are secure in his love. There is never coming a day when he will scowl at you and get annoyed with you and tell you, you sorry-looking wretch why are you living like that why are you doing that no he will love you he loves you too much to bless sin because it's bad for you but he always loves you there's never coming a day when he won't love you there's never coming a day when you can't in in, in the depths of the most wicked sin turn and say oh father forgive me I don't want this and he's going to say come on child There's never coming a day when he's going to reject you. There's never coming a day when he's going to look at you like you're nothing. Any day, any moment of any day from here till the end of time, he's going to open his arms to you because you're his, you're in. Nothing can separate you from that. Absolutely nothing. Now one last passage and then we're done. Ephesians chapter 3. 
Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers, and he's praying for them that they'll get what we're talking about here. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He wants you strong. How? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants you to know the love of Christ that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you know what keeps us from God? We're not sure of his love. Oh yeah. We got verses in our heads. Oh yeah, we've been told. But me today with my issues and I'm not perfect. He loves me today. Yeah. And he loved you yesterday and he'll love you tomorrow and there's nothing can separate you from it. And Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers that they would get it, that they would understand it, they would just comprehend it. That they're in. That there's nothing can stop his love for them. You say, that's kind of dangerous, Pastor. If, because if we're in and we can do whatever we like, then you know that, that could give people license to go out and do uh, what they're going to do. Look, it's, it's true. People can do that. People can actually go out there and uh, take it as license and do what they, do what they want to do and, and get involved in sin. They're never going to be happy with it, though. Because that's not what it's about. It's about the sweetness of relationship with him. But you know what? That's the only message that draws people into the place where they want to live for him and walk with him and enjoy him. That's, that's the message of the Bible. You're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect in this life. But his love for you is not conditional on you being perfect or anything else. His love for you is unconditional. He loves you because of who he is. And he loves you warts, sin, and all. And he never will stop loving you. Listen, that's the glorious message of the New Testament. That's the glorious message. There's not a better message out there anywhere. The message is, he loves you, you're in, you're his. Now, if we would just accept that, give up trying to be perfect, and live in that sweet, humble relationship with him, do you know what happened? We would find that sin's not the issue it is. Now, we would find that the draw to go our own way and do our own thing is not as compelling. It's not as much fun. In short, we would find ourselves becoming holy. You see, the Bible says this. The Bible says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Do you know that Christ is our righteousness? When we trust him and depend upon him and walk with him in this love relationship, what happens is the righteousness of the law gets fulfilled in us. It's kind of amazing. It's the way God does things. You striving to be all that you're supposed to be and feeling like a failure. And then you're giving up and you're saying, Father, I can't. Would you help me? And you crawl up in his lap and you sit in his lap and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm not striving, but I'm not looking for sin either. I'm not looking for my own way. I'm not going my own way anymore. I'm enjoying him. 
and you're being changed by Him. That's the plan. The plan is not go change yourself because you're an offense to me. The plan is, you're my child, come in. Enjoy me. And while you're enjoying me, I'll change you. That's Christianity. And that's the message that the world needs. It doesn't need another religion. It needs to know he loves us. It's okay, we're in. We're safe. And that's the message that Jesus gave them. He gave them that message of love. We need to drink deep. Drink deep and enjoy all that He's given us. And we'll find that we're holy because the world doesn't offer us anything. And we'll find that the world gets to see Jesus through us. And Jesus is the most attractive being that's ever walked this earth. And when we let him manifest himself in us, they're drawn to him. Not to us, because we don't get it right. We're not the standard, and we don't get it right, and we haven't got our act together. But they're drawn to him. That's why Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of him and not of us. That's what the world needs to see. And his plan is a good plan. And we'll recognize his love, stop striving to be perfect, face reality about ourselves, receive his grace, and depend upon his love. Miracles happen. And that's the only kind of Christianity that really counts. Miraculous Christianity. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this evening and thank you, Lord, for this people. Now, Lord, we need you, Lord. We're looking at truth and, Lord, the Apostle Paul couldn't communicate it, Lord. He he prayed that they would receive it. Lord, I pray for this, dear people. Lord, would you touch everyone in this room with your love, Lord? Would you bring everyone in this room into that sweet place, Lord, where uh, they know your love and they reckon on your love and they rest in your love and they enjoy your love? And, oh, Lord, I know that some will be tempted, Lord, to go the wrong way and just to uh, uh, to enjoy sin. Oh, blessed Spirit, w- would you show them? That's, that's the way of foolishness. And I know others are going to be tempted, Lord, to uh, continue striving to be good and to make it happen and to be the best kind of person, to be perfect. Lord, would you show that one too, Lord? It's not the way it can't be. But would you have us to come to rest in you and to rest in your love and to enjoy you? Blessed Spirit of the living God, would you do the work that no man can do? And Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.